Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. You just watched CNN's town hall on the fentanyl epidemic. A little later, we'll talk about solutions. What works and what does not when it comes to keeping fentanyl away from your kids? First, our top story. What happened to those four Americans who were kidnapped in Mexico? Tonight, two of them are back on U.S. soil, being treated at a hospital, but their two friends were killed. They traveled to Mexico so one of the group could get cosmetic surgery. And more and more Americans are doing that. And the Capitol Police Department want Fox's Tucker Carlson to stop lying about January 6th. So does the family of Officer Brian Sicknick, who died as a result of the insurrection. Republican senators also calling Carlson's conspiracy theories about January 6th, quote, BS, a lie and disgusting. Why doesn't Fox support police? Also, Michelle Obama talking about the day she moved out of the White House and why she sobbed uncontrollably. And then we went to Andrews Air Force Base, said goodbye to the military, got on Air Force One, and when those doors shut, I cried for 30 minutes straight, uncontrollable sobbing, because that's how much we were holding it together for eight years. Okay, let's bring in my panel. We have with us former Congressman Mondaire Jones, the better half of one of our favorite couples, Margaret Hoover, Mike Broomhead, who has his finger on the pulse of Arizona and beyond, and the always compelling Natasha Alford, and our chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, joins us from D.C. with all that he has learned about the kidnapped Americans today. John, I'll start with you. So frightening to hear what they endured and what they went through. Do you have new information on what happened to them? Were they fired on immediately from a distance or did the drug cartel pull them over and interrogate them? Do we, do we know what happened there? So it looks like the drug cartel used what we in law enforcement would have called a vehicle interdiction technique. They tried to, you know, block them, pull them over uh, when they wouldn't stop. You know, they have a car that blocks them from the front that they collide with um, and then they open fire. You know, when you look at the pictures of that van, you see the bullet hole in the driver's side front window. You see the bullet hole um, just below the window in the door. You see another in the back of the van. The passenger window is raked out. The tires have been shot out in the rear. So they meant to stop this vehicle. They opened fire on the people inside, and then they dragged them out. And then they discovered, uh, and this is the working theory of the case, that they were not interdicting um, members of a Haitian human trafficking uh, group that was competing with them, but they had run into Americans who had gotten literally lost looking for the doctor's office for this surgery. So then the cartel goes into cartel mode, which is damage control. What do we have here? How did we get into this? What do we do? And Allison, that's where you see the machinery of the cartel working, which is They're moving these people from multiple locations, from place to place over days, because they understand. 
both the Mexican government, their intelligence services, the U.S. government, the FBI, their intelligence services will be using ISR, uh, signals intelligence, human informants, everything they can to figure out where are these people. So they shift them from location to location, including a health clinic where they are there briefly to receive medical treatment. Remember, one of them, two of them have been killed. One of them has been shot in both legs, broken both legs. Um, and then finally, they're found by the Mexican government in this wooden house being guarded by a single member of the cartel who's now in custody. But it appears that the cartel understood we're going to have to get these people back because this is very bad for business. Yeah. And that video, John, that we watched last night was so awful. I mean, just watching these Americans being loaded into this flatbed truck, two of them looked lifeless at at that time. And now it seems as though we know that they were. And so why didn't they just, I mean, when they realized that they were Americans and that this had gone horribly wrong, why were they moving them around to safe houses and guarding them? I mean, what was that about? So, So look at that video. I mean, what you see is you see members of the cartel dressed wearing bulletproof vests, tactical vests out in the open, carrying arms out in the open, um, doing car stops out in the open. What this says, Allison, is that in Matamoros, the Gulf cartel essentially is the police. It doesn't mean that there are not police. There's the state police. There's the federales. But they control that area because they have more people, more guns, and more money behind them. So they are acting as the surrogate government in that area, loading dead bodies, dying bodies, um, wounded bodies, and and uh, an American woman into the back of that truck where they're going to take them somewhere, talk to their superiors and sort that out. Um, this is an out. The reason that the State Department says that's a level four do not travel zone is because there is no illusion about who controls that area. Hmm. OK, so let's talk about what is going to happen now or what should happen now. Let me bring in our panel as well. Um, so, Congressman, what how should the U.S. respond to this? And let me just first play for you what President uh, Obrador of Mexico said about the U.S. basically keeping their distance and not getting, not intervening. So here's what he said. We are not allowing any foreign country to intervene on matters that only relate to Mexicans. We do not get involved in seeing what the gangs in the United States distributing fentanyl are up to or how the drug is distributed in the U.S., Are there no networks, no cartels who sell the drug? That is a matter for the US authorities to resolve. So, there is cooperation. We are working in a coordinated manner with a respect for sovereignty. So where does that leave the US? I think in in a position of of strength, given our relationship with Mexico and Mm -hmm. their reliance on us. Look, no one's talking about infringing upon the sovereignty of Mexico, but there has to be cooperation. There has to be intelligence sharing. It, it boggles my mind whenever I read and hear stories about the cartel in Mexico. I mean, the fact that, that the cartel literally supplants the role of law enforcement in various parts of this country uh, is an indication of, of the failure of, of, of governance, yeah. it, it, to say the least. I mean, that's putting it very generously. I'm really holding back here. <laughs> um, you know, because the, the, the basic 
principle, the, the, the first order of business for any government is to protect its, its, its people. In this case, you've got American citizens. So it's not just the business of Mexico now. I mean, we, we have a vested interest in figuring out and holding responsible those who perpetrated this. Yeah, um, Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham, was just on our town hall this evening uh, about fentanyl, and he thinks that it, there, it could even require a military response. So listen to this. What would I propose? that we make drug cartels foreign terrorist organizations and we use military force, if necessary, to stop their poisoning of America, blow their labs up. You're never gonna win this game at the border. You need to tell Mexico you're harboring drug cartels, you're giving them safe havens, they're terrorizing Americans, they kidnapped four Americans, three of them from South Carolina, killed two of them today, enough is enough. So let's use every tool in the toolbox to go after them at their source. Margaret, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's, look, (laughs) Mexico also wants American tourism, right? That's a massive industry in Mexico. And this is going to really put a damper in in the flow of Americans going to Mexico and patronizing Mexico. It's, you know, this also is, obviously, we've been talking about how it's put a spotlight on medical tourism. And part of that also is, you know, our own bloated, inefficient, too expensive system of healthcare, and by the way, this is not the Republican conservative on the on the panel suggesting that we should convert quickly to single payer. But what I am saying is, if our healthcare wasn't so expensive, if we could actually get to the crux of the problem with the healthcare marketplace in this country and third party payer and all the rest, you know, maybe we wouldn't have the largest export industry of medical tourism in the world. Thoughts? Yeah, so we have about 1 million Americans estimated to be a part of the medical tourism industry. I don't know if you've seen social media videos of airplanes full of people with, you know, bandages just coming out of surgery. So it's normalized, it's being talked about, and, you know, I think there is an interest. Um, But you can get what you pay for sometimes, right? (laughs) Sometimes you will pay less and you'll, you'll actually get more. We shouldn't assume that other countries don't give quality care, but sometimes you pay less and you get less as well. So that is the danger. Um, I I also want to say the quiet part out loud. These are Americans. These are also black Americans. And when I hear that they were targeted in some way or assumed to be smugglers, um, that's racial profiling. That's the reality that, you know, other black tourists have faced in other countries as well in terms of being profiled. So I think the U.S. government has to also respond with that in mind, because many black Americans are looking to say, are you going to take this seriously? Are you going to treat us as we as if we are Americans that matter? The issue this morning on my show, I talked with a friend that's been 30 years with the FBI. Their concern is the corruption in Mexico. We just talked about this as a de facto government. How can you trust the intelligence you're getting and the information you're getting from your counterparts as FBI agents will be involved in this investigation? But are they going back and telling the cartels, are we ever going to get a solution? This is part of the issue as well, is are we dealing with people that are like are also like-minded in trying to get the solution to this problem, get the people that did this? And so they're concerned about the information they're getting, and they should be. Yeah. Um, friends, thank you very much, John. Thank you for all your reporting. Really appreciate it. Obviously, we are going to stay on this until it is resolved. Meanwhile, over on the Fox channel, Tucker Carlson is pushing conspiracy theories about police officers. Republicans who know exactly what happened that day say he's lying. One of them is here next. 
More anti-police rhetoric from Tucker Carlson tonight. He's trying to rewrite the history of January 6th and the police who fought to defend the Capitol and our lawmakers. My panel is here with me to talk about this. But first, we want to bring in former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who served on the January 6th committee. He's now a CNN senior political commentator and honorary chair of the Country First PAC. Congressman, thanks so much for being here. You know, I want to talk about how Tucker is going after the police. Number one, he claimed that he vetted all of the videotape that he played last night with the Capitol Police. They put out a letter today saying that's a lie. They say last night, an opinion program aired commentary that was filled with offensive and misleading conclusions about the January 6th attack. The opinion program never reached out to the department to provide accurate context. I mean, this seems like an easy one to uh, get debunked. What is Tucker Carlson doing? He's trying to make money. I mean, he's like, look, all you have to do is look at the Fox News texts with this Dominion lawsuit, which, by the way, they'll never report, right? Because they don't want their people to know that they've been lying to them. And what you see in that is people that know the truth but also know if they tell the truth, they might lose viewers. And so what you have is this cycle right now that Tucker Carlson is, who's smart, by the way, he knows better. He knows better than this stuff. You give him truth serum, serum, he'll tell you the truth. But he has to give his audience bigger and bigger dopamine hits to get them angrier and angrier. And that's what this is. The stuff he is saying about these videos, the stuff he is saying about January 6th, are outright utter lies, and most Americans know that. What's interesting, Congressman, is that his audience already saw the other tapes. Those tapes were played on Fox, not as much as they were played on real news channels. However, they were played on Fox. And so the fact that now he's going after the police and trying to claim that the police were showing the, you know, violent insurrectionists around the Capitol and that the police were, you know, in on it and helping them... how does going being anti-police, how does that help Fox make money? I don't know. So here's what they It's interesting because, you know, they'll go after the left and say, well, they don't understand police tactics. If there's like a police shooting or some kind of a violent thing, I'm saying right now they're they're preying on ignorance when it comes to police tactics on this situation. You know, they'll show videos of police removing a barrier and say, look, the police invited them in. What they won't tell their audience is actually know the police removing the barriers because they were using them as weapons. You see police around, you know, the shaman. Well, what they don't say is the police were outnumbered like a gajillion to one, and they were trying to get this from escalating to violence. So, you know, they, they don't respect their audience. It's clear. At least Tucker doesn't respect his audience because he doesn't give them all the facts and tell them to make a smart decision. He lies to them. That's all it is. Um, some Republican... Senators today spoke out um, about how, frankly, appalled they were by this. Let me play that for you. It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. To, to somehow put that in the same category as a you know permitted peaceful protest is um, is just a lie. I think it's bullshit. There were a lot of people uh, in the Capitol at the time who uh, I think um, were scared for their lives. So uh, you can, you know, however you want to describe it. But it was, uh, it was an attack on the Capitol. I thought it was an insurrection at that time. I still think it was an insurrection today. Congressman, what do you think of all that? 
Well, I'm glad they're speaking out. That's a hundred percent true. Um, you know, this wasn't even just something we could look back and say, well, you know, I'll leave it. Like this was a violent attack on the seat of government, the people's seat of government. And I, I, you know, I don't know where all the house members are. I don't know where the other Republicans are, but the one who owns a big share of this is a guy named speaker, Kevin McCarthy, who made a decision, whether it was a promise to become speaker or not. I don't know. Maybe we'll know someday. He made a decision to share this, not with CNN and Fox News, not with Fox News, with Tucker Carlson, the biggest conspiracy theorist. And I'll tell you what I know about Kevin McCarthy. He probably now has Tucker Carlson's texts. He texts with Tucker all the time and is probably showing everybody in his meetings that he's buddies with Tucker Carlson. That's the kind of thing he does. And he's tactically, look, not for the country, but tactically, it's probably a wise move for him to do this. It's terrible for the country, though. Well, Congressman, if you want to hear Tucker Carlson giving some truth serum, stick around for our next segment because he's about to reveal what happens when he's given truth serum. We have new texts from the Dominion lawsuit that you'll want to hear. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, so lots more coming out from this lawsuit against Fox, like what Tucker Carlson says in private about Donald Trump. Our panel is here to talk about it next. All right, more juicy texts coming out in Dominion's lawsuit against Fox, like what Tucker Carlson really thinks of Donald Trump. My panel is back with me. Okay, guys, I will do a dramatic reading now from Tucker Carlson's text. This just came out hot off the presses. He says, this was on January 4th, okay, two days before the insurrection. He says, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately, Tucker Carlson continued. I blew up at Peter Navarro today in frustration, but I can't handle much more of this. That's the last four years, Carlson added. We're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. But come on, there really isn't an upside to Trump. Well, well, well. Here's, I've I've lived this. I live in Arizona. I spoke out early that I didn't agree with the way the audit was handled in Arizona. I don't believe the election was stolen. As a Republican conservative radio host, you know that you're wading into a, to somewhere where you are going to be called a traitor by your own people. I, I, you know, I stand shoulder to shoulder with a lot of people on issues. But when you speak out about this, there is, there is a feeling, and I knew it was going to happen to me, that if you disagree like this, that no matter how peacefully or how rationally you say it, that there is going to be a backlash that you're a traitor. So I understand in a way what they're going through. But when you see those texts, I could not in good conscience say, I disagree with the stolen election premise and then go on the air and say, for my audience sake, I'm going to give them what they want. I'd rather lose my job. Because it's about democracy. It's about it's about integrity. Yeah, integrity. If, if I'm going right. to be if I'm going to be intellectually honest, if I'm going to disagree with some of the things that happen on the left, if I'm going to disagree with people vehemently about the way they do things on the left, I have to even if I don't like it, I have to say my side of the aisle is wrong in this case. And if you're not willing to do that, you give up all intellectual honesty. Oliver, is there any indication that the Fox audience is reading these texts and sees the hypocrisy? No, because Fox is not reporting on it, and they're just watching Tucker. Uh, tried to rewrite the history and sanitize the violence that occurred on January 6th. I'd also point out that this wasn't just one time where Tucker was very honest behind the scenes about Trump. You know, he called his post-election behavior uh, disgusting. He said that uh, uh, that 
uh, Trump not going to Biden's inauguration was destructive. He called him a demonic force. He called him a destroyer. There was a lot of stuff Tucker Carlson was saying behind the scenes that he never had the moral courage to say to his actual audience. And again, I'd say that these people talk about we need to respect the audience in, in these private messages that we're seeing because of this Dominion lawsuit. Respecting the audience is being upfront and truthful with the audience, not lying to the audience and not hiding the truth. But then they lose the audience, Oliver. I mean, they they were so afraid of the audience turning the channel to Newsmax. Well, they were they just wanted to keep feeding the audience the drug that they'd been. But isn't it how you say it? Because I have never been dis. I've maintained a relationship. Let's talk about the audit in Arizona for a moment. I've maintained a relationship with the people that did the audit, not just were in favor of it, did the audit because I was never disrespectful to them personally. I never called them liars or disrespected them. I just said I respectfully disagree. And fortunately for me, I haven't lost my audience. But I think part of that intellectual honesty is I have to tell the truth. And if I can't tell the truth and still keep my job, then I need to go do something else. Yes. Amen. Good for you. (laughs) We need more Root Talk Radio, conservative talk radio folks that comport themselves the way you have. And congratulations. Thank God for, you know, people like you in Arizona and beyond. There aren't many because most people don't have the There's more than you think. I just think they're nervous. They they are nervous and they lack the moral courage that you've displayed. They have to realize that that conservatives and Republicans, correct me if I'm wrong, they do take their cues from Fox News and and other conservative media. And so maybe it's something they don't want to hear. But at the end of the day, if you hear it enough, you just have to like sort of accept it. It doesn't mean you're not going to be a Republican or not going to vote for a Republican nominee anymore. But part of conservatism for us is we are uh, my brother, my youngest brother, who is absolutely my hero has been over 20 years in the police department. He's a sheriff's captain in Lee County, So Florida. what do you think about what when I see this, I think with the police department tonight? But at our core, we are still pro-police, pro-all of those things. So there's more people than you would think that feel that way. They just, they don't want to go against the tribal mentality of the louder people that are angry. And I think that's the problem. And I, I, I got to tell you, anytime you have over 100 police officers in an incident hurt, It broke my heart. What I saw happen on January 6th, I sat in my studio and I actually had tears in my eyes. I love my country. I love the Capitol. And to watch people hitting police officers with flags and then to defend it on any level, I can't. I'll do you one better. I was there in the chamber that day and nearly died alongside hundreds of people. And we have to say something about the role, the pathetic role that Kevin McCarthy in particular Mm -hmm. has played in this Mm -hmm. because he gave exclusive access to Tucker Carlson, of all people, to this footage that he knew Tucker Carlson was then going to distort. It it says a lot, frankly, about the Republican Party today that he felt the need to do that. What is it? I mean, because I think it's it's broader than when Donald Trump is out of the picture. There's still going to be a whole bunch of people left who want to hear the stuff that Donald Trump was saying about January 6th. I want to pick up on that because you you raised that and, and Representative Kinzinger also nodded to this right at the end of his comments. And it's that actually Kevin McCarthy giving Tucker Carlson access to the exclusive access to that footage was a power play in the context of the Republican Party, because now all of his conference knows that he and Tucker Carlson are buddies. And the truth is, Tucker Carlson has just as much power, probably more, than the Speaker of the House, the person who is third in line for the presidency, within the context of the Republican Party. But do you think it's a smart idea for Tucker to go after the Capitol Police? I mean, is that, is that a misfire on his part? Because he's saying that they were ushering the, uh, you know, peaceful protesters around like they were sightseers. Uh, he misrepresented 
and mischaracterized and lied, if you want to, uh, about the role of the police. I think in the long term, probably not. But in the short term, I think he's got a, three million viewers tonight who are probably saying, oh. It's not that like, these yeah. lies about January 6th have saturated right-wing media since basically January 6th. Yeah. And so it's part, it's like part of the profit model. Like this is the engine yeah. that's really been driving this stuff. Tucker Carlson is actually just one who just knows what is motivating the base and is happy to just say whatever, how, however shameless it is. Obviously, we know he doesn't believe this stuff, or at least a lot of it, but he knows what gets the base going, and he just he just feeds it to them. Yeah. So talking negatively Quickly. about Capitol Police is not going to harm Tucker Carlson. Yeah. There are so many House Republicans who have come out in support of defunding the FBI. They yeah. support law enforcement when it's convenient for them, yeah. and when it's not convenient for them, yeah. and they just pretend as though it's not a law enforcement issue. But it's not just... Yeah. To lump the entire Republican Party in that, I think, is a little bit... Uh, too much. I, I would say to you that there are many people that I hear from folks. elected officials that are saying the same thing, that uh, we like what you're saying. The problem is in order for them to get reelected or to keep their ratings, mm-hmm. they're they're saying some things that they know that the audience wants. Sure. And they're afraid to, to uh, mm-hmm. you know, go against it. But we did hear those Republican senators yes. uh, saying that it was BS. And let's see what happens. So let's see what happens yeah. to them now. Tomorrow. That Probably, well, Tucker Carlson might blow them up, but the, this is also the, the genius of our founders and having six-year terms as opposed to two-year terms. <laughs> I mean, you get the reasonable Republicans are disproportionately centered in the Senate. All right. And having it run statewide. All right, right, guys, thank you very much for the lively conversation. Stick around, please, because Michelle Obama is opening up about her, quote, uncontrollable sobbing after Donald Trump's inauguration and what else she thought about that day. So we're going to play that for you next Former First Lady Michelle Obama says she cried for 30 minutes after she left the White House for the last time, calling it, quote, uncontrollable sobbing in her new podcast, The Light Podcast. After the inauguration, and we know whose inauguration we were at, that day was so emotional on so many different reasons. We were leaving the home we had been in for eight years, the only home our kids really knew. Um, They remembered Chicago, but they had spent more time in the White House than anywhere. So we were saying goodbye to the staff and all the people who helped to raise them. There were tears. There was that emotion. But then to sit on that stage and watch the the opposite of what we represented on display. There was no diversity. There was no color on that stage. There was no reflection of the broader sense of America. And Many people took pictures of me and they like, you weren't in a good mood. No, I was not. We're back now with our panel. Natasha, how did you hear that? Um, I think that I understand. Yeah. You know, this, this first lady, she remains one of the most popular first ladies. So let's get that out there, right? And she managed to do that with such grace and dignity, right? Um, so many attacks on her husband, watching um, this transfer of power to a man who called for her husband's birth certificate. Think of the insults that she endured. And yet again, uh, she made the White House a place that was for all Americans. She opened the door. She said this was the people's house. So I imagine from many levels, not just politically, but as a mother, as she said, this was an incredible transition for her. And so I understand the tears. I think a lot of people were at home crying with her. (laughs) Margaret? Yeah, you have a lot of empathy for her and a lot of sympathy for her. By the way, like she sat on that stage, kept a straight face. Guess who didn't? George W. Bush, the former <laughs> president. I mean, remember he had, when he heard the American carnage line, he said that was famously was reported to have said, well, that was some weird ass. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like 
you have a lot of sympathy for um, anyone in that position, but it's also eminently a very personal transition. I mean, she raised her children there. She lived there. She re- she had deep relationships and meaningful relationships and moments that um, were there. And, and you can't take that sort of personal element away from it either. So I have a lot of sympathy for it. Jay, how did you sneak in here? I didn't even introduce you. Uh, Jay Michelson, how are you? In through the side door. What did you do with Mondaire? Where is Mondaire? Um, uh, welcome. Thank you. Um, how do you hear what the First Lady said there in the podcast? You know, I just was really struck. There's almost this national conversation about what strength looks like right now. Yeah. And for me, you know, for her to sort of show this vulnerability for me was such a sign of strength and of real power. Right. You know, there are a lot of folks who would say, oh, well, that's weakness. You know, I can, I can imagine the sort of headlines, you know, oh, it's a great way to own the libs, right? Oh, you know, Michelle Obama was crying right. for a half an hour. But I felt that that was so beautiful. First, that she had that experience, and then that she felt able to share that. Felt like a really, a, a really profound, strong moment. And that's very interesting because it took her a while to share that. So it's been a few years. She's written two books. Now she has this podcast. She's sharing it. But there was a time in, in 2017 when she went on some late night show. I don't know if it was Jimmy Kimmel or um, Jimmy Fallon. But she she joked about it. What, what was I thinking uh, that day? I said, "Bye, Felicia." Like she just gave a quip. Right. And now this seems like the more possibly authentic. Well, it's response. been a few years, right? And you know, I think that some of that might be just coming for the wisdom that comes from age, but some of it is that she doesn't have to show that certain face anymore, right? She's not just the recently ex-first lady. Time has passed, and I feel like there's a, a space for her to be even more herself. Okay, everybody, stick around if you would. There are plenty of words that have been placed on the "don't say" list lately. Is that list getting too long? You'll hear what my next guest has to say about that and what new words we can't say. Stay with us. The word woke is certainly getting a workout these days, particularly in some of the language that we use. And while Republicans like Florida's Ron DeSantis are waging war on woke, is there an argument that the push for more inclusive language could be going too far? I have my panel standing by to weigh in. They're very excited about this. But first, I want to bring in George Packer of The Atlantic, who has a fascinating article called The Moral Case Against Equity Language. Um, George, thanks so much for being here. I read your article with great interest. Um, basically, you uh, ha- explained that some of these words, well, let me just start with some of the words to show people what's changing. So you looked at the Sierra Club language guide, and the Sierra Club language guide has a lot of words that they think need to be retired. So here are just a few examples. Empower should be switched to elevate voices. Stand in solidarity should be switched to rise in solidarity because not everybody can stand. Depressing should be switched to disheartening or sad. You can explain why. You guys should be switched to all of you because obviously you guys is gendered. And then, I mean, you said waiter, waitress, server. I think we've been calling people servers for a long time. But I was also interested in they want to retire urban, vibrant, hardworking, and brown bag. Why? I think they find those words to have some sort of subtle bias or some subtle racism in them. And honestly, I can't explain it any better than that. It's it, a lot of the selections are a mystery. A lot of them seem to have been decided by a, a committee that was looking for any reason to get rid of any word that could cause any hurt to anyone. 
And that's sort of the purpose of these equity language guides and a lot of American institutions, mostly nonprofits and universities have started um, adopting them or even writing them. Stanford wrote one and then withdrew it after it was subject to a lot of criticism. The purpose of them is to get rid of any trace of exclusion or bias or hierarchy from language because those qualities hurt and reproduce oppression and uh, bigotry, etc. So it's an attempt to purify language by getting rid of words that could have traces of those qualities that any decent person would be against. Hmm. The problem is when you get rid of those words and substitute what are inevitably euphemisms, jargon, abstractions, mush, you stop being able to name the thing and to see the thing and to speak of the thing and write of the thing. And so it all disappears in this fog and we no longer really know what we're talking about and we have this illusion that we've made the world slightly better when in fact I think we've made it slightly worse. One of the things that I was interested in reading in your article is that this these are not, obviously all language changes. Language evolves. The dictionary adds new words every year and some words are retired. But your point was that happens organically. You know, younger the younger generation starts using new words and it all happens organically. This is not, you say, an organic process. Right. This is not the way language changes when lots of people begin to use new words. This is handed down from above by small groups of so-called experts who supposedly represent communities, but we don't know who they are. We don't know how they make decisions. Um, and it's, it's a kind of fait accompli, like it's a diktat that gets passed down. And for that reason, I think it's sort of alienating to a lot of people who find that a word they've used all their lives and have heard all their lives is suddenly banned. It reminds me a little of the workers in Orwell's 1984 assembling the Dictionary of Newspeak, which is the process of destroying words in order to make unorthodox thought impossible. These la equity language guides are a little like that. They're not totalitarian, but they do have this purpose and effect of making it impossible to have a thought that you could consider to be a bad thought. But I don't think they're getting rid of bad thoughts. What they're getting rid of is our ability to talk about bad things in a way that makes sense and that we can communicate in ordinary speech. I mean, no disrespect to the Sierra Club, but does it matter what the Sierra Club's language guide says? Or, do, you know, how how widespread is that? That's a good question. You know, you, I could be accused of making far too much of guides that are really internal matters for the American Cancer Society or the University of Washington. I think that these guides, which themselves uh, are inspired by a cut, just a couple of handbooks that have been published by activist organizations end up influencing common writing and common speech. They influence what journalists write and say. They influence what people mainly in, let's be honest, educated professional circles feel that it's okay to say. So eventually it does spread to the larger society and people suddenly become aware, oh, yesterday you could say marginalized. In fact, marginalized is a bit of a mushy word. Today, according to one of these guides, marginalized is actually not a good word and you should be careful about how you use it. So there's a sense that you're always a step behind. You're going to be ambushed tomorrow by the next edition and you have to catch up and you have to study it. It's almost 
in, in the way they present it to their staffs, it's almost like a religious manual that you have to pay careful attention to and give a lot of reflection to in order to know exactly how you can write and talk. Hmm. Uh, George Packer, thank you very much for this really provocative article. Great to talk to you about it. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. I want to bring in the panel now. We have Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michelson with us. He's also a rabbi and the author of God versus Gay, the religious case for equality. And one of my favorite Republicans, it says here in the prompt, you're like, so I, they ha- put I that have in to, the, right. Yes. So I have to, that's what I'm sticking with. I'm going to change Hibber. my Twitter handle. I mean, I see you as so much more <laughs> than Allison that. Alison Camerata's favorite yes, Republican. I, that's right. <laughs> um, also political commentator and millennial expert, Evan Siegfried, and the always compelling Natasha Alfred. Okay, great to have all of you. That was fascinating, I think, about, because I think that he's right People do feel as though they get in trouble. That's part of the problem. If you want to change your language, change your language. But the feeling is of a finger wagging tisk tisk. How dare you not know that marginalized is no longer used? Do you feel that way ever, Natasha? I, I think that there's a difference between poor execution and the principle and intent behind what we are trying to do. Um, I agree, who is the Sierra Club to sort of dictate uh, our language, but I don't think that's actually happening. And so I wonder, you know, how many of these groups that are making an attempt, maybe they're influenced by some, you know, extreme uh, consultant group that they've hired, actually are speaking for the communities that feel they are affected. Um, So, but what I don't like is when people use that poor execution of a few to then throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, just throw away all of this effort to try to be inclusive, um, to try to be thoughtful. You know, it's it's really, excuse me, excuse me, used as an excuse to not engage by people who are unwilling to change. Can I build on that a little bit? Because I, for lack of a more diplomatic term, kind of hated the article Precisely because it conflated the two points, which I think you just made, right? So, you know, you said at the, at the top, right, there's a finger wagging and there's a sense like you suck if you didn't use the right word. But that's not what this article is attacking. It's attacking an attempt to make it not suck, right? So like, hey, we're trying to help you, we the Sierra Club, because you might not be up on the ways in which your language can harm others. And no one's saying, like, we're reinventing language. Only George Packer was saying that. The, the, the guide doesn't say that. It says, here are ways to use language that's a little less harmful. But, I and, mean, is hardworking and vibrant so, hard, um, harmful? Uh, so, I'm not, you know, I think we can, like, I, I didn't love all of the words that were in the cancel list. But, again, that's sort of conflating execution with principle. So, you know, I grew up in the 1980s in Florida. Um, we said, that's so gay all the time. I was a little closeted gay kid. And I didn't get any, nobody's talking about homosexuality when they say that's so gay. They just mean to say that it's terrible, it's bad, and gay sucks, and you should be ashamed if you're gay, which I was, right? So I experienced that. My mother, who was Jewish, was once told by somebody that she was Jewing him down on a price, and he didn't even mean to be offensive. That was just a word, right? I also grew up using the word gyp, right, which is about gypsies or the Roma people. And I had to learn in my 20s or 30s that that's kind of not a cool thing to say, to, like, stigmatize an entire group of people. I mean, George Packer can say that that's not organic, but I had to learn that. We used the N-word in my high school class. Like, white people use it all the time. Like, that was considered what you said. And I had to learn that that wasn't okay. And he can say that's inorganic, but to me, that's how we grow. But there's a balance, right? There's a balance. There's how we grow. There's all the examples you just cited. And then there's, like, left-wing activist groups like the Sierra Club, which literally is going to be a Republican ad for Ron DeSantis or a line in Donald Trump's next political campaign, you know, in the next week. And so, the, so 
you know, there, there's a backlash because, you know, of course there is the expansion of language and the um, evolving, frankly, evolution of, of, of our country's um, identity and inclusiveness uh, towards everybody that's, that's part of our country. So you think it's giving them too much fodder, the right, the, the Ron DeSantis's of the world too and much then fodder. And then there is an illiberal tendency on the far left to do the thing you said, which is finger wagging, and to and to dictate what is acceptable and what isn't, and, and there and there is a way to do it. There is a way to expand people's minds to, and to to grow as a country and to grow sort of as a civilization. But but it, maybe it is the way you do it. But also maybe some of it is just overreach. It is also coming out, and it's become such an important issue for people on the far right. If you look at CPAC this past weekend, it was a very present thing. Woke. We don't even have a definition of what woke is. If we went on the street right now and asked 10 people, we'll get 10 different answers. Uh, we've tried that on this show, yeah. and everybody has a different but response. But also, you know, Republicans uh, on the far right, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Ron DeSantis, they're going out and saying, sticks and stones may bake your, uh, break your bones. But woke language uh, and language prescriptions, those are the true threat to your individual freedom and your individual liberty. And they're preying on people. Yes, I think the Sierra Club and other organizations are a little excessive. If I were an employee in that situation, I might say, you know, I don't have to work here. It's my personal choice. But at the same time, you know, I think that we should be respectful of other people. I have friends who have changed their pronouns and I've gotten it wrong. And they've said, hey, you know, you got it wrong. And I try and I say, what would you like me to call you? It's embarrassing. It's awkward. It's like if I had met you at a cocktail party and then two months later I bump into you and I forget your name. We get over it. And that's just about being mature and not shrinking well, down. Well, I certainly it. understand that on a one-on-one basis. But in terms of the changing of um, not calling someone, even this I think I sort of understand. The, the not We used to call people homeless. And now there is more of an effort for unhoused people because you don't want to use, uh, that's an adjective. So, so we were using it as a noun. Calling somebody homeless as a noun defines their identity, whereas calling somebody homeless, it's an adjective of where they are at the moment. Yes, but I don't think that people are using that insensitively. I mean, people are, I don't know that, what do you think? They're not intending harm. Well, sometimes it is politicized and there's an intention of harm, but I think most people don't. And that's exactly why the the politicization of this, the reason this is so palpable on the right, the reason this is just an easy um, not even laugh line in a Donald Trump rally is because most people don't mean to harm. Most people's intentions are good. And, and so it, it feels, um, it, it, it inspires a sense of the resentment. Jay, you're, yeah. I, I just think the irony of the right being upset about the way that we use words is that they literally stole a word from the African-American community, have completely redefined oh, okay. it, taken away what its original intent was and said, this is what it means now. Well, you know, that, go ahead. No, no, sorry. We remember the term Latin X. That was a poll and it started to become more and more into the mainstream and it was pushed down. And then polls of Latin American or Latino found that they did not like that. And it really backfired in that sense. And we've pulled away from that. And I think there is some trial and error that has to go on and trying to find the right phrases. But at this point, you know, 
we don't need to have it so where it gets to be ridiculous where you say the word American is offensive to people who are not American citizens. But who gets to say that? I'm, I'm Latina. I'm Latina, right? My mother may not use the word Latinx, but we are a different generation. And so there are certain considerations and experiences that I have that make me more open to that word. I don't judge my mother. I don't say that my mother is wrong. We don't argue over it, but we like are able word? to have a conversation. I don't think it's about whether I like it. I think it's about the people that it represents. There are people who who that that uh, that binary of being the A or the O ending, it does not represent who they are. And I can respect who they want to be in the world while at the same time calling myself a Latina, but saying you want to be referred to as Latinx. I have no problem with that. I have a documentary called Afro Latinx Revolution. And I chose the X because I wanted to be inclusive. So I, th- I think there's room. I really think this is about execution. But but no one was necessarily pushing this down everyone's throat. I I think it was uh, a certain sort of um, reaction to the fact that people did not want to even have the conversation about why we would change the way that we talk. Jay, did you have something? Yeah, I just feel like, again, you know, what was what were these documents? I actually really do believe these were meant to be helpful documents we're putting in a whole bunch of made up stuff that somebody's going to be finger-wagging or this person's going to be canceled or this person's going to be called offensive or this person's going to be called a bigot. I don't have any data that that's what this was about, right? I may quibble with some of the words maybe, but maybe I should get a little bit more educated and I would appreciate the document actually doing that instead of like resenting it and try to make it into like a political attack. Well, uh, you'll be delighted to hear that George Packer has stayed with us uh, listening to oh, this. Oh, come on. I thought he was done after the <laughs> intro. That was the whole point. This is, I know. I can't believe that I'm They're actually blindsiding oh you with this. I know. And I, I'm sorry. I love the article. I know. And you've... I know, <laughs> you love the article now. Um, and so, George, uh, your thoughts on what you've heard from our conversation? I just love the clarity and force of speech with which everyone has torn my piece apart. That's exactly what I want. Um... <laughs> You're welcome. First of all, I, I got to defend myself. I am not advocating slurs. I make that quite clear in the piece. Why would I? Any decent person would never use a slur, wouldn't even try to use something that might be inadvertently offensive. You should call people what they want to be called. That's basic courtesy. What I'm talking about is public language that is not slurs, but that is creeping toward a kind of euphemistic vagueness that makes it impossible to state the thing clearly. And I think anyone who's interested in social justice should know that in order to change things, you first have to face them squarely. So if you can't use the word poor um, and instead you have to use the word people of limited financial resources, have you faced it squarely? Are you getting closer to the problem and to solving the problem? Or are you trying to make yourself and maybe people who are listening to you feel as if you're decent people. To me, it's a bit self-serving to use this language because I don't think it really does much good for the truly afflicted. I think what it does is make us feel as if language itself has changed the world. I think it's almost a pessimism about our ability to change the world materially. And instead we turn to euphemism in order to do it. So actually, I'm going to wave the banner of social justice and say, in order to have a more just world, we need to speak the truth clearly and understand it. Well, really interesting to get everybody's perspective. And nobody was advocating slurs, obviously, but I really appreciate your perspective, George. And it's certainly a thought-provoking topic and has got us all talking. So thank you very much again for being here. My pleasure. 
All right, meanwhile, California Governor Gavin Newsom taking aim at Walgreens. We'll tell you why next. Governor Gavin Newsom says California is done with Walgreens after the pharmacy chain announced they will not distribute abortion medication in 21 states. We're back with our panel. Uh, Gavin... Governor Newsom put this out yesterday. California won't be doing business with Walgreens or any company that cowers to the extremists and puts women's lives at risk. We're done. Um, Evan, you don't like this idea. I don't like it on a couple of levels. First of all, let's, why is Gavin Newsom doing this? He wants to be considered a presidential candidate. And he's doing this because he does not really have a good record to run on as governor of California. Uh, California has lost population for the first time ever. And last year in 20 or in 2021, California lost population. West Virginia gained population for the first time in 50 years. But what did Gavin Newsom leave out about why he's dropping Walgreens? He left out that last month, a group of 20 attorneys general of states all across the United States sent Walgreens and CVS a note saying, hey, if you are to distribute this abortion pill, you will be in violation of the Comstock Act. And as law enforcement officers, we will go after you legally. The executives at Walgreens and their board had a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to protect the company from legal liability. And Gavin Newsom left that out. He has double victimized Walgreens in a shameful vanity play to become a presidential contender. Hmm. Totally. You agree? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, that's I mean, it's look, there are states where it is not legal to perform abortions now. Now, do I agree with that? That happens to be the law of the land. I don't think it should be. Um, I I did not want Dobbs to be a road to be overturned with Dobbs. I don't agree with that decision, but that is the rule. And so this company has to abide by the laws in these states. So Gavin Newsom is a he's a show horse. I mean, he's doing this to garner attention. Just political, not because and by a thousand percent political expediency. I don't know of any other governors who are posturing in order to run for president. I just can't possibly imagine. No, but but this is what governors do. This is the progressive inverse of Ron DeSantis. It's literally like right, a progressive so inverse of Can we start with this term abortion pill, and which was even in the intro? This is a misnomer. This medication is used to treat miscarriages and also for abortion purposes. Walgreens is not asking women who are asking for this medication what they're using uh, the medication for. They're just saying we're not going to do it. The Republican attorney generals, who, by the way, the Republican Attorney General Association supported January 6th and, and said we're going to send all, send all kinds of inflammatory messages before that. have threatened to sue based on a 19th century anti-pornography law, the Comstock Act, which hasn't been used in decades, to try to say that, well, this is sort of similar because the Comstock Act also had a line in it about abortion. But this is not an abortion pill. This is a medication that can be used legally or illegally. Walgreens has arrogated to itself, rather than all of the women in all of these states making the decision how to use this substance, they've taken on themselves that this is always going to be illegal. That's absurd. There are things which are legal in in some purposes and not legal for others. And this is a medicine which is needed by thousands of women across the country. Maybe then legislatures should pass laws in order to to make these things clearer, because it is not on the corporations or the company's leadership to take a social stand. They're simply making a a pharmaceutical product available or not available based on what the laws are. But that's why the Republican attorney generals who started this fight sent the wrong letter. That harassment letter going to Walgreens was just harassment 
harassment. It was political posturing. And what does they it even know mean, full by the way? Well, but, they know full well that they, have not, they do not have a leg to stand on because this is a medication that could be used legally or illegally, and they are wrong. Uh, and uh, then Walgreens caved to that pressure uh, for their fiduciary duty, totally agree, and now this fight is happening. And, and what does it even mean we're done with Walgreens? Meaning they have to get out of California? I mean, well, no, he's, he's, he's reviewing all of his relationships that the state has with Walgreens itself in order to punish Walgreens for having sort of made a business decision based on this Republican attorney generals. But we weren't talking about these Republican attorney generals. We are talking about the showboating governor of California well, we're talking about both. who wants right. to win the political news cycle because of the issue is a galvanizing issue on the progressive left. But it's also important to note that he was reacting to a state like Kansas where it is legal to have this medicine abortion um, and the uh, sort of vague promise that, you know, they wouldn't operate in Kansas. So it was the idea that you would uh, basically kowtow to these governors or to officials in a state where it's supposed to be legal. That was the reaction um, from Newsom. It wasn't just about, you know, respecting the fact that in certain states it's not legal. It's the states where people should have access to this medication, uh, where Walgreens was sort of implying or indicating that they would be willing to not give the medication. So why doesn't Gavin Newsom go out and instead of taking the quick 15 seconds of fame or 15 minutes of fame for this particular matter, go out and actually use his political apparatus and his money to try and go out and change the legislatures and try and get the Comstock Act repealed in the federal level? He's not. He's doing this. It's a PR stunt. He has no legs to stand on as a record as governor. And that's, at the end of the day, that's it. And he's making Walgreens a victim because Walgreens didn't want to say, we're going to go into a big, expensive legal fight, which is going to hurt our stock. It's going to upset our shareholders, many of whom are actually people with retirement funds. So it's not like it's the uber uh, rich that are going to be truly victimized by this. They could very be, well we just be more capitalist about this. Isn't he just equaling out the risk for Walgreens? So Walgreens was facing one particular risk from these Republican attorneys general. Now they're facing two risks. Now, if I'm the management of Walgreens making a purely capitalistic decision, I can go to my board, I can go to the shareholders and say, well, look, we got lawsuits on both sides. We're going to lose all of California's business. But then we got this lawsuit. Maybe we should just give women the medication that and they might should I have. add more than 50 50% of abortions are medicine abortions. So this is the front lines of the fight. So they're going to have to make a decision. And it's not just Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid. Everybody has to figure out where they're going to stand on it. All right, panel, thank you very much for all of those perspectives. Stay with me. What can we do to keep fentanyl out of the hands of vulnerable Americans, especially young people? We're going to talk about that. As we just watched tonight in CNN's town hall, the fentanyl epidemic is affecting every community in the U.S. It's the deadliest drug epidemic in American history. The CDC says fentanyl is up to 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. One dose, often taken unknowingly, can kill you. We're back with the panel. Um, So, friends, does anybody have an idea for how to keep fentanyl out of the hands of young people? I mean, this feels so out of control because young people who, I mean, you heard it tonight. They think that they're taking a Percocet. They don't know what they're taking. They've ordered something online and it doesn't say that it's fentanyl and one time kills them. That isn't, the, the, that's not the, the drug war of our youth. Well, for, certainly we have to crack down or have social media have better content moderation because dealers are able to get on Snapchat and other social media platforms and directly get it to our younger Americans. And that's a real problem. Remember, Just the tip of a pencil, the size of a tip of a pencil of fentanyl can kill you. That is terrifying to me. And this can get into 
regular drugs. Somebody might be thinking they're taking Oxy or maybe even a hit of Adderall. And that's that it. That is what's happening. And in fact, if I pull up this graphic, it just shows how much fentanyl has outpaced every other dangerous drug. So the green line that you're seeing there that starts heading upwards in 2013, that is above, at this point, meth, above cocaine, above heroin in terms of the deaths that it's causing. I mean, and you can see it's precipitously rising there. It was just heartbreaking watching the town hall, which in the audience were numerous parents who had lost their children uh, to this. And what struck me watching it was just a sense of humility that Mm -hmm. we need to really re-examine some of our assumptions and kind of check our priors. Uh, There was a moment where uh, Senator Lindsey Graham was on there kind of making a strong case for intervening in Mexico and taking aggressive action. And that might not be where I go to ideologically, but I was really thinking about it. You know, this was such a, it's such a tragedy that I think we need all the tools in the toolbox. Um, But then there was a moment where he was asked about what's called harm reduction, which is we know that that people are using these substances. What can we do to make it safer? That's something that liberals tend to like, conservatives tend to not like, because maybe it encourages the use of the drug. But again, it just for me, I was struck by really a lot of humility. There was a, a doctor, Dr. Jordan, at the end, who really said, this has been tested in Europe. Harm reduction works if, you, if we can distribute Narcan, if we can make it more available and make it commonplace. She used the example in that town hall of like, it's a little bit like condoms. Like we were a little embarrassed talking about condoms, you know, for, at one time. And then they're just ubiquitous and I mean, it's not a big deal. Well, as a measure, piggybacking on that, Jay, as a measure of how serious a crisis it actually is, you talk about harm reduction and conservatives not really embrace it. Well, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas has now said he's willing to consider and embrace legalizing test strips, yep. right? That's harm test reduction, strip. right? These are, and strips. these are these test strips, which, as the, as the official said in the Anderson Cooper special, if you uh, are going to take an illicit drug and you crush it up and you use this test strip in a certain way, you can determine whether it has fentanyl in it. Um, and, and that has actually been passed in other states. Uh, the governor in Pennsylvania signed that bill a few months ago. It will um, save lives. But it, it, it would save lives. And it's this question. It's, almost, it's sort of like the debate, at, not the condom debate. I was thinking also the needle exchange debate during the HIV crisis, right? Like, it is a real recognition when you have across the political spectrum, conservatives and Republicans looking at harm reduction because that's how serious this crisis is. That shift in mindset that yeah. this is a public health issue. This yeah. is not an issue to shame people. This is not an issue where victims deserve their punishment. Um, it's, it's something that I wish that we had in the 1980s when crack hit communities, right? And we learned those lessons. We criminalized victims. We threw them away in jail. It disrupted families. It disrupted communities. We have a chance to do something different. But I think it's because victims are children. You know, we, we see ourselves in them. We see them as family members that people can finally find that empathy. Uh, I think we should not politicize this. This is absolutely about saving lives. And when you, when you approach that as a public health issue, that changes the way that you approach policy. A little more drug news just in to CNN. CNN projects that voters in Oklahoma will reject a ballot measure that would have legalized recreational marijuana in the state for adults 21 and older. Marijuana legislation, as you may know, has been a mixed bag nationwide. During the midterms, voters in five states considered legalizing recreational marijuana. It failed in Arkansas, North Dakota and South Dakota, while voters in Maryland and Missouri passed similar ballot measures. Okay, up next, police say that a group of teenagers wearing masks and hoodies ransacked a New York City restaurant, causing thousands of dollars in damage. It was all caught on camera. What is the solution here?
Here's some startling video. Police say this group of teenagers right here in Queens, New York, ransacked this restaurant, as you can see, flipping tables, breaking plates, and damaging a window. The restaurant says nobody was hurt in this attack, but they did sustain $20,000 worth of damage. The NYPD uh, is now, this says this group is now wanted for criminal mischief. Um, Okay, we're back with the panel. So this is, when people say the street crime is up, um, let me just show you some stats before we all talk about it. From 2021 to 2022 in New York City, street crime, like robbery and burglary, um, felony assault, up something like 25%, 23%. Just in the past year, it's gone down a little bit. So if we look at where we are now, year over year, it's down 2%, 3%, but still on balance, it's up. Um, Congressman, what's happening there? Look, I've, I've been reading up on this story. It, it seems so random. Like, I want to know if these guys knew someone who works at or owns the restaurant. There's no excuse for it. And there should be accountability. There should be consequences for people who do stuff like this. Of course. But do you think that it is the, is there, are they prosecuting less street crime? I mean, that's the argument is that DAs are saying that they're not going to go after lower level crimes like turnstile jumpers and public urination. And that's leading to somehow more street crime. That is often said without evidence to support it. Look, accountability and consequences need to be something that is are imposed in a variety of different circumstances, including what we just saw on film. And that's something that prosecutors should look into. That's my perspective on it. Okay. So I don't know in terms of solutions. We don't know a lot about the motives of these particular criminals. I do know politically Democrats need to figure out a way to talk about this issue in a way that's not Republican light. Right. I mean, Arguably, the way that Mayor Eric Adams has talked about crime reinforced some right-wing narratives about New York City crime that hurt some Democrats. So there has to be a sort of more fact-based, evidence-based, and really serious conversation around uprooting some of the deep causes uh, that lead to this kind of behavior. And some, sometimes, you know, there's, there's a tendency among progressives to, send, to cede the moral ground to the right. Like, they're the ones who talk about ethics and morality. But speaking as the rabbi at the table, that's a, that's a profound mistake. And I think, again, we don't know anything, really, about this particular attack. But there needs to be a, a real way to talk about root causes and changing the conditions that cause, changing the economic conditions and the social conditions and the cultural conditions that have caused all of these statistics to be so unfortunate. And people have to understand that we can talk about root causes and also talk about accountability. When people say solve the root causes, they're not saying that you don't. Uh, hold people accountable, but Republicans have effectively made that Democrats' uh, message, right? They've warped the message to say that Democrats are soft on crime. But what does that really mean? Locking people up, throwing them away, not giving proportional sentences, that's not going to stop the crime that you see. It's not going to stop teens who maybe gather and ransack a store. Um, It's just important that we not get caught up in uh, basically Republican talking points And Democrats, as you said, have to figure out what is their message going to be, because that's what people are voting on when they go to the polls. Well, I think it's important to note that this is a very complex issue that has complex solutions. It's not, as Republicans point out, oh, we just need to do this one thing and take a tougher stance on it and it'll stop things. But at the same time, I grew up in New York City in the 1980s. I remember that. And Republicans are representing what's happening in cities across this country as some sort of worse than the 1980s. 
In no way is this worse than the 1980s. At the same time, I think there is a perception, particularly in New York City and other cities such as San Francisco, that quality of life is also dropping. So simultaneously, the public trust is completely eroded. And part of that is because with homelessness going up and other issues such as, uh, you know, where we try and actually have services for this. Yes, Republicans have tried to cut those services. And as a Republican, I'm actually against that. What we need to actually do is make them effective. But let's not forget that there's the NIMBY factions, the not in my backyard. And they are absolutely a, a real plague on solving these issues. In my own district, there is a transitional housing project that was announced last week. And over the weekend, the city council member, she came out and said she wanted them to cut the number of beds in half because she felt it was inappropriate. And my district is one of the most liberal districts in the entire country. Really interesting. Uh, Friends, thank you so much. Meanwhile, so many Americans are now working from home. It's given rise to a trend called body doubling. We're going to tell you what it means. It's so that you can feel like you're not working alone. That's nice. Uh, Some TikTok users are streaming video of themselves working by themselves at home. These videos are dull as dirt, but thousands of people are eating this up. Allie Campbell is one of the young women live streaming herself to her nearly 90,000 followers. She calls the practice body doubling, meaning parallel working, so people working from home feel less alone. Body doubling is just working in the presence of another human being. The other person doesn't even necessarily need to be working. However, my theory is that body doubling is especially helpful in the co-working sessions because it makes something magic happen with like our mirror neurons. So while it would be as effective to just have somebody in the house sitting around as we're doing whatever we need to do, it like ups the effectiveness even more when we are watching somebody do something productive or when we know that we need to do the same. We want to mirror that, you know? Okay. You know what other way you could feel less alone? Go back into the office. <laughs> Get out of your house and go back into the office. That's another suggestion. I like the science. I'm in. <laughs> so I, I like totally... the wand. Yeah, that, that was too. great. Was was it a wand? The science of me, the mirroring part of our brain? <laughs> yeah, whatever that is. It yeah. feels like we just watched a TED Talk from a combination of Elizabeth Holmes and George <laughs> Santos. I mean, if you're lonely and you still want to work from home, get a dog. My dog is now probably upset that he's being replaced by somebody like this. This is just, it's outrageous. And now I have to bring in uh, Allie, our guest. Oh, my God. There's there's three, four years ago, there was a whole wave of study with me videos where it's just like people diligently studying in libraries and beautiful cafes. And there are ambient sound streams that you can get. So you have the sound of the cafe. So then that was helping people. I I want to take this seriously. I mean, people do get lonely. And I think anything that helps them get through the day, you know, it's, you know, there are people who need white noise to go to sleep, right? I, you know, I, I don't, but like, I, I respect that some people need that. And so. To be uh, fair, I, to support you, Bondair, <laughs> and you're, you're thoughtful. doubling him. You're actually theory doubling him. Being compassionate. I, I was a part of a writer's group. It was a virtual writer's group and we did not talk to each other. In fact, we turned our cameras off, which was also kind of like, why are we doing this? But the, the idea that someone was on the other end doing something was actually really good motivation and good accountability. That's Sometimes even weirder. Is it? Yes. <laughs> but it the worked, The lack though. of the camera. Yeah, the lack of the camera, because it's like, don't look at me. But we got a lot done. So whatever works for you, I'm just glad people are reaching out. Because on a serious note, people are 
feeling depressed. They are feeling isolated. I, I love action. And Good. if you have something tedious Quickly. to do, knowing that other people are doing it is motivation. Yes. Um, misery loves company. That's great. Thank you all very much. I certainly appreciate all of your company. Thank you for being here and thank you for watching. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.